today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if you noticed this, but the municipal election is underway here in Hamilton. It is. I mean, allegedly. Because if you're like me, you have seen absolutely no evidence of anything to do with the municipal election. Nothing. No signs, no people out. I don't really find many websites, not much in the way of Twitter or Facebook or nothing. Now, some of you are saying, hallelujah for that. We don't need more politics. This is summertime. But I do find this to be a very interesting scenario that we have an election that is theoretically underway and there is no sign of it. Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, joins us. Mr. Mayor, how are you today? <laughs> I am very well, Scott. And you know what? Your list of interesting topics, I have opinions on every one of those topics. Well, you know what? Come in, bring a coffee, stick around. You can, you can do the show with me. You can co-host today. But uh, no, let, no. let's you're, get to... You're the consummate uh, professional at that. Well, I appreciate that. Let's get to this uh, first up, though, because he, here's why I find this so puzzling, Larry, that, that with the election on that we're not seeing much right now. We hear regularly, and I believe accurately, that incumbents in municipal elections particularly have a massive advantage over anyone who's trying to take their job because they are in the news all the time. So even though it's the summertime, why are the largely no-name challengers not doing more to take advantage of every available minute to get their name known, to get recognized, even if it's in small ways? Why would they not do this? Well, so I think you've, you've kind of answered the question uh, in, in asking it. Uh, it is uh, the 9th of August, and so we are in the so-called dog days of summer when people are more interested in vacations and enjoying themselves than, than politics. And uh, really things uh, get into gear earnestly after Labor Day. Uh, that's when you'll start seeing a lot of at least public attempts uh, to try to, you know, get into the public consciousness. And that's when people start listening a little more. Brian Mulroney, former prime minister, once said uh, about a race, he likened it to a sprint, and he said that nobody really pays attention until the gun goes off. And and the gun hasn't really gone off, even though uh, people have nominated themselves in that that, race. that timeline has come and gone. Um, so, so part of the answer is that we are in uh, the dog days of, of summer, uh, and uh, and so a lot of public uh, stuff is not being done. But that doesn't mean, however, that things are not happening, uh, and that uh, uh, candidates, at least the serious ones, and really, uh, if you look at the Hamilton scenario, uh, we have the mayor. Uh, with all of his experience and his uh, incumbency advantage, um, certainly way ahead in popular recognition, if not support, uh, but certainly recognition, uh, at this stage is more than happy to keep things under the radar mm-hmm. and not make a fuss and wait until Election Day and uh, get over the, the uh, line. It's the others that have to work hard, uh, and none of the others really have the experience that he has. Uh, the only other named candidate, uh, other than Fred Eisenberger, would be Vito's Grove, uh, and only because he's been sort of a backroom political operative for many years and, and knows his way around, if not the uh, halls of power, uh, but certainly the back rooms of, of power, and would uh, present, I would assume, a formidable challenge in this in this race, even though he himself acknowledged when he was interviewed by the local paper uh, that he has uh, some hurdles to overcome around name recognition. But that gets but exactly that's... to my point, though, Larry, and, and you're bang on, because that. but that's my point exactly, is that there are 15 people who are running for mayor in this election, and I would put money, I'm not a gambling man, but I would put money down that if I went to 100 people on the streets of Hamilton and did a random survey, nobody could name three of them. Maybe yeah. nobody could name two of them. And leaving aside the, the aldermanic or the, the city councilor roles, 
If you're, we're not talking about Hamilton being Mellonville with Mayor Tommy Shanks running for this. This is a big metropolitan area for the mayor's race. I would have right. thought for sure from the moment the the writ dropped, from the moment they put their names in, they would be out front doing everything possible to close that gap on name recognition alone with Fred Eisenberger. Except remember that that people are not really paying attention right now, and so. If if they were out there trying to spend some money um, to get their names known, uh, people are away. Uh, they may be on vacation in in distant lands. Uh, they may not be reading the paper as assiduously as they might uh, at other times or watching TV. And so, consequently, would be money uh, not well spent. But that again doesn't mean that there isn't organizing stuff going on. I know for a fact that there is a major fundraiser in town tonight for a candidate who is uh, hoping to uh, to at least crack the uh, the uh, the uh, upper echelons of, of public uh, awareness. And so I think all candidates who are serious, uh, the mayor uh, certainly would be uh, doing organizing right now, as well as any serious challenger, and raising money is an important part of that because not only... Does it give you the fuel to then buy the ads or do the promotion, get the uh, uh, the signs bought and all of that stuff? But it also tests public support. If people come out to your fundraiser, uh, they mean that it means that they might think that you have a shot. If they don't come out, it, it tells you, uh, gives you a message uh, to work even harder, perhaps as well. Uh, so my guess is uh, certainly when I reflect back on my campaigns uh, that that. These periods of seeming inactivity uh, are like the uh, the prefer uh, the proverbial iceberg, you know, where you see the one third on top, uh, but uh, most of it is below the water level, and people are furiously working away at uh, at organizing, getting themselves ready for the public pronouncements that'll come after Labor Day. That that's my guess. If if that is not happening. Quite frankly, that's all good news for uh, for the incumbent mayor. I, I, if look, people are sitting back, then then you know they're they're missing the boat. I think you are one hundred percent correct. Uh, I I think nothing you have said is incorrect in this. I I guess I'm puzzled because when you ran when you ran for mayor, uh, you were running against David Christofferson and a bunch of right. other people who did not have familiar names by and large and. I don't know what you think about this. I don't think you win as mayor unless people knew you already. There, if Larry DeAnne was a name no one had ever heard of before, David Christofferson romps to that election win. He just does. That's the way it works in municipal politics. So, I, oh, absolutely. But but that you know brings brings back memories because I do remember when I threw my name uh, in the hat at that election. Uh, we had done a poll, or a poll had been done uh, that essentially showed me at a very low recognition level, even though I was an elected official at the time, had been on city council, or at least on uh, Stony Creek City Council, not Hamilton, and it had a 17-year history of involvement politically. I didn't, uh, I mean, I wasn't one of those politicians that was seeking the limelight all the time, uh, and so consequently, I wasn't known by the general public. And what that poll showed me, it showed two things, that David had, um, had more recognition than I did, uh, and I had less recognition, but it also showed that I had greater room for growth, uh, and David didn't. He had sort of peaked uh, with that recognition, and it gave him, I think, a false sense of security as well. Uh, he figured that he had to go around and show people that, uh, you know, remind people of who uh, he was uh, and uh, the fact that he was well-liked, and he was uh, as well, and vote for me. I had to actually come up with some policies that then drew attention to my candidacy, as well as the fact that I had a whole history of involvement politically as well. And so my guess is that whoever is is wanting to really to challenge Fred at this point is going to have to do the same. Okay, you know the mayor, um, and he is the incumbent, and he uh, is well-liked, but he also has a track record that people may like or may not like. And, and, and if I'm the challenger... I'm going to go after that track record, and I, I should be presenting some ideas that will attract voters to me. So they may not know me, but they may like what I stand for once they hear about it. But all of that cannot happen unless people are really ready uh, to listen to the message, and that's not going to happen for a few weeks, I don't think. 
and whether you've got the money to then get that message to them in various ways. Signs, uh, ads in newspapers, local and the, uh, and the daily, uh, as well as radio, as well as television, as well as billboards. And I used all of those when I ran against a popular, well-known guy and came out on top, at least in that first race. Let me throw out one more wrinkle to you about why I think that they, some of these people are missing the boat right now, even though, again, I agree with what you're saying about the fact that by Labor Day is when it really ramps up. There are, I think there were eight candidates when you ran for mayor, something like that. Uh, there are. Oh, I don't remember, but yes, in fact, there were. Of okay. Course, Michael Baldessero, Dan, or uh, Matt Jelly. Sure, so there and, were eight. Uh, you know, now, there were eight of us. Yeah. Now there are 15 and in some wards, because we have four vacant wards with no incumbent, there are tons of people who are running. As soon as Labor yeah. Day rolls around, if when the machinery moves into high gear, it's going to be really easy now to get lost in this or very difficult to now stand up above the crowd and be noticed. So if you wait till that machinery gets operating, you're now working in a din. You're working in a factory and trying to scream over the machinery and be heard. That's tough. Well, except it isn't. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Well, it, it is for those 13 who are just in it for various exactly. uh, and, and and perhaps not laudable reasons. And I would start with a known uh, racist, apparently, or alleged racist, or maybe even more than alleged, I don't know. Uh, but apparently there there's someone running with, with a bit of a history that's checkered around those issues uh, who would be in it just to try to promote whatever ideas he might have and, and the other 12 perhaps as well. <clears throat> have no chance and only are in it for some personal satisfaction. And by the way, I believe that everybody in a democratic system has the right uh, to put their name forward and see if they can attract votes. I'm not sure if uh, if uh, uh, an alt right sort of uh, agenda, if that's if that's the case uh, with one of the candidates, uh, fits that bill or not. I'm not sure. People will have to make their own decisions as to whether that's laudable or not. But let's say that there are two candidates that, that have a, cha- a chance, obviously the incumbent mayor, with an overwhelming uh, uh, odds uh, on favor to, to retain his job, and a challenger who wants to take that away from him. Let's say there are two. The media is going to give them the platform because the media is going to cover the election. It's much too important to not cover it. Uh, this is, after all, a major Canadian city with lots of interesting issues to talk about. And so the media is going to give them the exposure uh, that uh, will allow people then to decide which way to vote. Uh, the media is not going to cover. I mean, they're going to mention the other 12 candidates because they have to uh, at the end of a tag, uh, at the end of a, an article, say, if it's written. Uh, but they're going to focus on this platform versus that platform. And given that it's Hamilton, it's, uh, you know, they're going to try to raise a single issue as the defining issue for the election. I don't think there is one right now, although some will try to make LRT perhaps as the ballot box uh, question for the election. And so the media will do the work, and you're right. There will be 15 other races going on in four areas without an incumbent, and those are going to be uh, challenging uh, or challenged uh, races because people are going to be working hard to get their names out. But it'll be more difficult for the local people to try to rise above the din and be noticed in their own ward than it would be for major mayoralty candidates where the media is going to focus on what they say, the tweets they issue, what their surrogates might say, whether they, you know, whether there are any stumbles, whether there are any groups outside that are putting pressure in this direction or the other direction uh, to try to get their side uh, winning in the final analysis. And I think we're going to, you know, we're going to find that it's going to be an interesting race, regardless of who might have the odds uh, right now. I think uh, they will narrow uh, because the media is going to try to be even handed about presenting fairly uh, platforms from credible candidates. Not everybody's going to get the chance to, to, to have their platforms uh, voiced, and nor should they, especially if they're questionable ones. Uh, but but. The ones that that are deemed to be uh, verifiably uh, serious candidates that might lead this city are going to be given their shot, and they should be, uh, before people make their choices. Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, a group of several dozen Hamiltonians and a bunch of other people from around the province went down to Queen's Park to fight slash lobby slash, well, put your own verb in there, whatever verb you wish to choose, for the basic income pilot project with the which the Doug Ford conservative government uh, stopped the other day. Uh, one of the people who was there, who was also leading this protest, this group from Hamilton, uh, Tom Cooper, the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction Head, President? Director. Director, okay. Director will work hey. uh, in studio today. Thanks for coming in. Good to see you again, Scott. You look exhausted. I am I'm exhausted. not insulting you, but you look exhausted. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But it's uh, it's it's been a very long week, and it's been very emotional for a lot of people. And, and so we're just trying to do what we can to, to keep going and uh, stay active and tell the stories of the people in Hamilton whose stories need told. How did yesterday go then? I think it was productive for the most part. Uh, we brought a group of 30 local basic income participants uh, on a school bus to Queen's Park, and we had the chance to attend question period, and that was probably the low point of the day. Um, just watching the partisan rancor, uh, rancor uh, was was really disheartening for some of the uh, participants. Um, the government didn't seem very interested at all in addressing the uh, cancellation of the basic income pilot. Uh, they were talking about a buck of beer, and um, that's their priority right now. Um, they think that's where they should be putting their emphasis and, and the province's resources. But unfortunately, there's a thousand people here in Hamilton. There's another thousand in Thunder Bay. There's 2,000 in Lindsay who've been cut off this program after having the Conservatives promise to them not once but twice during the election uh, that it would run for the full three years. And now so People are are afraid. Uh, they're not sure what the future holds for them. They're not sure if they're going to be able to keep their housing, uh, go back to school as they had planned, do some of the other things in their lives that they were basically promised they could do. So how then, you use the word productive, how could, it doesn't sound very productive. Well, the productive part of the day was really following question period when uh, the participants themselves were able to split off into groups and meet with uh, some of the MPPs at Queen's Park. And and that was that was really helpful. Uh, we had a chance to um, uh, to meet with a number of the NDP caucus members, and they hosted us for lunch, actually, which was really nice. Um, uh, another group broke off and met with uh, a couple of the Liberal MPPs, and a third group went and met with uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. And uh, so I think all of those conversations went really well. Uh, the, those politicians seem to be very open to, uh, to the idea of trying to find a way to restore the basic income pilot, as was promised. Um, we then had a bit of a media conference at the end of the day and um, came home. So there was, I, I think in terms of getting some conversations going, that was very productive. For, for me, the most important part was ensuring that the people on basic income had their voices heard. Um, so productive almost as therapy? It, yeah. You know what, Scott? In, in a sense, maybe it was uh, because people heard about this announcement suddenly. Uh, they heard, you know, heard on the news or maybe a friend phoned them. Nobody from the government had gotten in touch and nobody from the government um, was interested in consulting with them ahead of time before this announcement was made. And so people uh, were really felt powerless, I think. And, and so this gave them an opportunity to at least understand that some politicians are willing to listen. And, and sure, everybody has their own opinions on, 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 on some of the rationale for that. But I, I think... For people uh, who are in a very vulnerable position right now, it, it was somewhat therapeutic. Any sense from anybody, from any person there, that there was a chance that this is going to be productive, though, as far as changing anything? I don't know. We, um, we've we seen the language that the minister, Lisa McLeod, has been using uh, shift a little bit over the last week. Um, so immediately it was going to be cut off. Um, and uh, we knew people were going to receive their basic income in August, but we didn't know what was happening much beyond that. Uh, now, in in question period yesterday, she talked about a longer runway um, to bring people off the program in in um, a sensitive manner, I suppose. And so we don't know exactly what that means yet. 
Um, but we really think the government needs to stick to its commitment and stick to the commitment to the people, particularly. We've seen lots of media stories over the last few days of, of just what the cutback is going to mean uh, for individuals in our community. Um, young woman who uh, is, is trying to get back her children from uh, tr- children's aid and, and did everything she was supposed to, um, getting, uh, getting a new apartment uh, so that her children could live with her. Uh, she signed the lease, you know, about a month ago and now finds out the program's being canceled and she can't even afford the, uh, the lease anymore. Um, the, the rent is going to be $900. She's going to get a maximum now if she goes back onto Ontario Works of $721 a month to cover rent and, and food and all the other things in her life. So there's no way she's going to get back her kids, uh, even though she's been able to turn her life around. Um, there's lots of other stories of people wanting to go back to school, improve their skills in, in September. They're not sure if they're going to be able to do that. But one thing I mentioned yesterday to the politicians and, and at the media conference is that two-thirds of the basic income participants who are involved in this program are actually working. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And, and you, had a, you had a couple of BI participants on last mm-hmm. week. Um, James was one of them speaking yesterday, and you know, he has a part-time job. Uh, he's, he's also you know, trying to, uh, to start his own business. He's, um, you know, he's one of many examples of, of people on basic income who may be working, but just aren't getting enough hours or they're working in precarious work or they're working at minimum wage and just not able to lift themselves out of that uh, working poverty rut, let's say. And so for them, basic income was really critical. It's interesting you bring that up because, uh, and for those who, uh, Tom was on with me, I was filling in for Bill Kelly last week. So if you were wondering, well, I don't remember that. Okay, it was a different, slot. But anyway, you had a couple participants in here. And it's interesting you bring that up because I had a few people after that show come up to me and talk about that. And they the comment from them was, the uh, and we don't need to use the names right now, but the, the, the woman who was here, they had great sympathy for. Her situation was very mm-hmm. difficult. What, yep. She was, I think there was a disability from work or something mm-hmm. involved in there. Yep. They had more trouble with him because of the fact that he had a job. Yep chose to leave that job and take on the basic income, their comment was, wait a second, I'm not sure the taxpayer should be paying social assistance for someone who could work or had a job yeah. and chose to leave it. Yeah. And maybe maybe it wasn't described quite as well, but he is working. He is working. At, I, I know exactly where he's working right now. He has a part-time job. It's not at the same employer, but he is working. Uh, he's getting a basic income top up um, right now of, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's a few hundred dollars. And uh, really that's enabling him uh, to pursue his entrepreneurial goals. And um, I I think for him and and for many other BI participants who are out there working, you know, it's it's been a really important program. Uh, There's one young lady yesterday who was talking about working for different part-time jobs and not being able to even have enough time to eat because she was moving from part-time job to part-time job and trying to balance and juggle all of this. Um, so I, I I think there's there's value in exploring this idea of what a basic income can do. We know automation is coming. The robots are, are starting to take over um, starting to take over workers' jobs now. So are we going to have the jobs in the future that we have today, and how do we ensure that um, if we don't have those jobs, that we still have uh, a provision to enable people to have a stable financial foundation, not only so they can get their basic needs, but also so they can, uh, you know, contribute to the local economy and, and, and buy goods and services, which is, you know, what we need to keep the economy rolling. You didn't know what I was going to ask you when you came in here, uh, but you're doing a great job at... Uh segueing from one thing to another because you mentioned <laughs> the four jobs. I want to read you and it's not very long. Okay. There was a letter to the editor that was in the spec yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably read it. Uh, some people uh, may have seen it. Some yeah. didn't, but it's three paragraphs. Let me just read it to you. Okay. Uh, and it's talking about a Ms. Bell who I guess was one of the people who was on the basic income and is now off. Yep. I'm so sorry that Ms. Bell is experiencing hardship. Welcome to my club. I'm retired and receiving the bare minimum from the government. Increases a few cents each year. Whoopee. I had to start working at 18 as my father suddenly passed away. I never got a chance to obtain a bachelor, master's degree. I went to the school of hard knocks. Nothing was ever given to me that wasn't earned. 
And many a sleepless night was spent worried about paying for groceries and clothes for our family. I worked driving a school bus for 25 years, and even though it damaged my spine from all the bouncing in the seat, I still had to go work to work sore and suffering. I have chronic pain now and no free handouts. Ms. Bell complains about having two jobs. Try raising a family, being chief cook and bottle washer, housekeeper, taxi driver, while working hard on an outside job just to keep up. I have little sympathy for Ms. Bell. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know that there are many people out there who, of a generation especially, who say, we didn't have this and we found a way to get by. Well, you know what? That person does have a basic income. That person is, if he's retired, he's uh, receiving Canada Pension Plan, he's receiving old age security, and if his income is low, he's getting what's called the Guaranteed Income Supplement. And a guaranteed income supplement is is a uh, basically a basic income for seniors in this country, and it enables uh, seniors to comparable stay. to the basic. It income? is very comparable. Okay. So we already have a basic income for seniors. It's it's the guaranteed income supplement. We already have a basic income for low income kids. It's called the Canada Child Benefit, um, and it goes to low income uh, uh, families with low income children uh, who who can't afford to raise uh, their children because they're working, you know, again, these multiple part-time jobs or, or they have other challenges in their life and, they, and they're just not earning enough. So we, we have basic income for two different cohorts here in this country already. Um, but when we're talking about people who would traditionally be considered within that working age of 18 to 64, there seems to be a lot of societal pushback. And and certainly I sympathize. You, this isn't the first time you've heard that. No, I, I, I certainly sympathize but. with his, uh, his, his difficulties. And, and I know it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in central Hamilton too. My dad was laid off, you know, um, several times uh, when I was young. And, and we've, I think a lot of us in this community have, have struggled in one way or another. Um, and, and, and certainly I don't want to minimize his experience, but um, I don't think that's any reason to say we can't do better for everybody. And I think that's what the basic income enables us to do is, is to really uh Think about the future and think about how we could all have income security so we don't have to, you know, wouldn't he have loved to have received a basic income when he was a school bus driver, when he could have done other things in his life? And unfortunately, he, he, it didn't exist then, but it could in the future. So let's strive towards that. I don't think probably, though, that this is unusual, not these specific words, but I'm sure you've heard things like this before. Oh, yeah. I, I made it by, mm-hmm. despite nobody helping me. Why do we need to be doing this now? I'm sure that's not an uncommon thing for you to hear. It isn't. And, and it's one of the biggest pushbacks, right, against, uh, against the idea of BI. But that's one of the reasons we should be testing it. And nobody's saying we're going to uh, create a universal basic income program in three years' time. Um, you know, what this program really does is it's testing the theory of it. And it was really important from that perspective to see what works and what doesn't. Basic income could very well become the most important social policy of the 21st century. But unless we start experimenting, we're never going to know. We can't just implement it suddenly one day and say, look, we're in a crisis situation with our economy. People are getting thrown out of work. You know, let's try this basic income. If we don't know how how it's going to roll out, how are we ever going to uh, make plans for the future? What if it wa- what if it had stayed on, and what if it had become wildly successful and expanded right across the province? I know your answer would be that's great because now a whole lot of people are going to have an opportunity. The other side of it, though, from the government side, is that's going to be costly. It is, and th- and they're talking about potentially seventeen million, or sorry, seventeen billion dollars over the ten billion that we already put into social assistance yeah. now. Yeah, so th- th- I'm not quite sure where they're getting those numbers from, but um, let's say it is. We also know there was a study done and. The study is almost 10 years old now um, in by the uh, Social Planning Councils of Ontario. And it said poverty costs us in this province alone $32 billion a year. And that's uh, lost opportunity costs. That's cost to the healthcare system because we know at least 20 or 30% of all people using the healthcare system are living in poverty. And living in poverty means you're far more likely to contract disease, to be ill, um, to have asthma, to have mental health illnesses. Um, Poverty is costing us too much and it's costing taxpayers too much. And the way we're going down this road, um, you know, Hamiltonians are some of the most generous people anywhere in this country, I think. And whenever, you know, there's a need at food banks, people step up. Um, but we kind of got to think about 
Einstein's axiom, right? Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. It's great to donate and it's great to uh, help out people in need, but unless we're fixing the system, um, you know, solving those root causes of poverty, uh, we're never going to get out of this endless cycle. And, and to your point, let, let us assume for a second that your number and their number are both right, that it was $32 billion that's being cost by poverty and that social assistance between the 10 billion that exists now and another 17, again, assuming all these numbers are correct. So we would be 5 billion ahead with a social, with a basic income, if we could reduce those costs. Here's the challenge of this is, and you mentioned it's the system, it's the governing of it. If you, with that 17 billion, that's about 52 or 5,300 per family of four that is not on it for Ontario, added taxes. I don't think many people believe that any government is going to say, well, we can save 32 billion, so we're going to reduce the taxes back. We'll just add these on. Yeah. That's where, there has to be some, and I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have both the left and the right hand working together to say, if we do this, it will actually save you money. Because I don't believe, and I think a lot of people say, I don't believe that the government will ever end up giving us back our taxes or cutting our taxes. They'll find ways just to add to it. And that's the concern a lot of people have. Yeah, it is. It is a concern. And one thing that we need to think of with basic income is when people have a basic income, that's money that's recirculated in the economy as well, right? So it's it's almost like a, a infrastructure investment program, but mm-hmm. you're, you're investing in people instead. So people will take their basic income, they'll spend it on local goods and services. That'll help drive local economic growth. It'll help create local jobs. People will buy goods and services. Um, so there's that economic multiplier spin effect. Off, sure. Yeah, there's there's that. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, you know, there's certainly strong economic arguments for it. And I'm not an economist, but I've heard economists talk about this. Um, but you're right. From the political perspective, it's going to be very challenging to bring it in um, because governments tend to not think a whole lot further ahead than the next election. Well, exactly. And if you're now having to, let's say we're going to say eventually it's going to save us 32, but to do this, we have to put an upfront amount of 17. As I say, that's an extra 5,000 per family just on your provincial tax bill. That's not a political winner for for winning votes if that comes off your taxes. Yeah. And that may be true. And I I think that was one of the reasons why we really wanted to see this pilot continue and and, and try to answer some of those questions as well. Um, So, you know, again, I think for me, the the theory around basic income is really critical. Um, but my number one priority for the past week has been trying to stabilize those people who don't know, mm-hmm. you know, what their futures are going to hold for them. And people have been cut off by the Ford government. Um, so, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, we're thinking ahead on the basic income front, but for now, we really want to try to help those people and, and try to ensure that there's some protection for them and that their legal rights are, are insured as well. We're in year one of this, right? Yeah. Okay. And it was a three-year pilot. So let's say that this had gone for the full three years and then the government of any stripe, whether the Liberals had won again or NDP or whoever, said, you know, we've looked at this and it's just not that good. It's not working that well. I'm just throwing out a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. We're going to cancel this. Yeah. Would it have been any better three years down the road or would the people who are upset and feeling stranded today be in the exact same position three years down the road? As yeah. soon as you start this, basically, are you basically compelled in your mind to carry it forever? That's that's a very good point, Scott. And I don't think that's the case. I think people went into it with their eyes wide open. Um, people made plans for the future. Many people were you know, hoping to get off BI before the three years were up, you know, whether it's like James and starting his own business or going back to school, getting the skills, finding the job they they needed for the future. Um, So I think it's really around the commitment to the three years. Uh, People basically sign contracts for the three years. And, you know, as a a sports reporter, you know, if you have a high high profile athlete who signs a contract and then one day the the team says, wow, we just don't want you anymore for no particular reason, then... What happens? And well, and I only have 30 seconds, but the reason I ask that is let's say the government were to listen to all this and say, you know what? Okay, there was a commitment here. We will honor this three years, but don't expect us to carry this beyond that and don't expect us to expand that. Do you then say, 
fine, we're okay with that? Or do you say, no, that's still a stupid thing that you're doing? No, I, I think I think at this point, my priority is stabilizing the incomes of the people who've been promised this basic income for three years. So, you know, that's our number one priority right now. I, I'm still going to fight for basic income. Um, but I think, you know, our, our number one priority is the people of Hamilton and, and the other communities who've been, uh, who've been told uh, that they can continue on basic income. Tom Cooper, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Scott. Get some sleep now. I will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm a little confused today, and that some people will say, well, that's just standard operating procedure, but it had been reasonably clear in my head, reasonably well-established. I was pretty much sold, in fact, more than pretty much sold, on the connection between blows to the head, especially in things like football and hockey, and CTE, leading to horrible brain damage and problems down the road. We've heard for many, many years now concerns and people talking about how football, especially in hockey and other sports, are leading to concussions, which lead to this permanent brain damage. And through all the studies that I've seen, I had... Like most people, I think I was completely on board with it. And I still logically believe that that must be the case. And then I read a story today in the Los Angeles Times, which seems to, or yesterday, I guess, which seems to bolster that point of view. Uh, The NFL had put aside $52.6 million as part of their CTE settlement with former players. They put aside $52.6 million, and that was going to cover the payouts for still live former players suffering Parkinson's or ALS claims, which they, I guess, in some ways acknowledge may have been connected or partially were connected or whatever to the game of football. Anyway, $52.6 million was put aside. That was supposed to last until 2082 for these claims. That money is gone. In fact, they have now paid out $146.5 million in claims, three times what they had expected and we're only in 2019, not 2086. So all those people who say, yes, clearly there is a connection between blows to the head, concussions, and CTE, they're onto something. However, here's where things get strange. Here's where things get weird. Because uh, at the University of Buffalo, a group of researchers studied a number of ex-Buffalo Bills and ex-Buffalo Sabres Athletes, professional athletes in contact sports with head injuries. And they discovered really um, no extensive, no extra risk of developing CTE. They say it's not as great as once believed. They're not disputing the existence of CTE. The story goes, but the researchers, based on finding no evidence of early onset dementia in 21 21 former Bills and Sabres players, said they do not believe CTE is as dangerous as previously thought. Let me bring in Steve Buse. He is a national newspaper award-winning investigative reporter with the Hamilton Spectator. Um, He is familiar with this topic because about a year ago, maybe a little longer than that, he published a four-part series called Collision Course. You can still find it at thespec.com all about this kind of thing, uh, using CFL players, retired CFL players as the subjects in cooperation with McMaster University. Uh, He found something totally different from what the University of Buffalo folks found. Steve, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem. Uh, As I said off the top, I see these two things. I read your series a number of times. I am now completely confused because I thought science was consistent and science was science, and now I don't know what to think. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that um, that it's confusing for people, um, and I'm I'm a little confused by the University of Buffalo study myself. Uh, I read a I read a report on it uh, from the University of Buffalo, and there's some things that um, don't really make sense. And I'm not suggesting that their that their work isn't isn't um, reliable or valuable, accurate. Um, like for one thing, I don't know what the split was between football players and hockey players. Um, my guess would be that uh, football players would be more likely to suffer trauma than hockey players. Yeah, they said they had uh, eight football players and thirteen hockey players. Okay, so that right off the top might 
um, be a, one of the reasons why it was a little more elusive for them. Uh, the other thing is that I, I'm not sure exactly how they're measuring CTE because, to the best of my knowledge, there still is no uh, marker or uh, test that you can do or, or a brain imaging that you can do that shows CTE in a living person. And so they did use living uh, retired players, um, and I think what they've done is they've used some different types of other tests as a proxy to say, okay, because of the results in these proxy tests, we're going to then, you know, say that there's no CTE. But I'm still of the uh, belief that there is no test that you can do short of waiting until a person passes away and then essentially carving up their brain to see if the CTE is actually there. Yeah, what they said is, uh, and again, I'm reading this from a Buffalo News story, is that in almost every single case apparently known of people who eventually had severe CTE when they were having their brain cut up after death, they had shown some kind of signs of early onset dementia. And so they were doing tests to find any evidence of that. So there's your your marker before you die to say, okay, do they have any of this? And if they don't, then maybe they don't have the CTE. Yeah, and, and but my understanding is that they were doing it based on some sort of cognitive tests, so not... Um not actual brain imaging tests, so they, they gave them some, you know, cognitive tests and, and said, okay, how do you perform on these? And, uh, you know, the players came through without showing any signs of early dementia. That doesn't necessarily mean that because there isn't early onset dementia uh, symptoms that there won't be dementia at some later point, obviously. And, you know, the average age of their study, I think, was 56 which is roughly about the same as what we had uh, age-wise uh, as, as the median age in our um, spectator slash McMaster study. For those people who don't remember, and I know they're going to go and read it on the spec.com right after we're done here, but for those who don't remember, uh, what did you guys do for the study and what were the results in, in short? Yeah, so uh, we compared retired players to controls, so the controls had no history of concussions. And uh, we gave the players uh, functional MRI tests, so pretty pretty intense, uh, one hour long in the tube, uh, you know, basically looking at brain anatomy and brain structures. Uh, we gave the guys EEG testing, um, and we gave them some cognitive and, and uh, health and depression surveys as well. And it was the, you know, sort of measurable stuff from the EEGs and the MRIs that were most shocking, obviously. Uh, that's where we found that on average about uh, 20, there was about a 20% reduction in the uh, brain cortex material, so the outer shell of your brain that has all of the nerve and the nerve bodies for all of your, your neurons for your brain cells. Uh, so there's about 20% reduction on average between the players and the controls. And with the EEGs, I mean, we had players, as I've said uh, before, we had players who had results from their EEGs that looked no different than what you would see in a coma patient. And these are players that are walking around, you know, living their life, functioning, you know, for all intents and purposes. Their brain has their brain has basically adapted to allow them to continue to function, even though by rights that they probably shouldn't. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure exactly how you can can categorize it, but but yeah, you're you're right. I mean, as I said, if you looked at just the results on paper, uh, clearly they're not in a coma. Um, but I think the most telling thing was, you know, one of our experts who who's a, an expert in reading and analyzing MRI results and and looking at the cortical thickness of of, of brains. You know, I asked him. I said, you know, now that you've looked at these you know, two dozen CFL players' brains and their results, how many of these guys would you expect to see uh, developing CTE? And he said, oh, pretty much all of them, you know, which, you know, frankly, is pretty shocking. So, Well, pretty terrifying for those who hear that. Absolutely. And, and it's not a surprise that a number of the players didn't want to know their results. Um, they just, you know, they, were, they wanted to participate in the study to help their colleagues, but they didn't even want to know their own results. I think partly because there's nothing that can be done. There's no treatment yet. There's no, you know, having no that information doesn't really, isn't going to really change your life. You mentioned about the, the testing when their brains are being sliced up, and 
Boston University has done an extensive study. They had 111 brains. I don't know if they've had more since this study was put out. They probably have. But uh, And when they did the testing of deceased players, these are all former football players, uh, 110 out of 111 had signs of CTE. What the Buffalo, University of Buffalo people are saying is, well, and they don't have, and quite frankly, the Buffalo people are puzzled by their research answers too, by the way. They, yeah. they're, they're not sure why they got this. Um, but they're saying, look, the 111 people who donated their brains to this study in all likelihood were people who were doing that because they were having evidence that something was wrong. These are people who probably were motivated to give their brain because something was going clearly awry in their head. The people that you studied, were these people who all had complained of issues before or were they a wide range of people who did and who didn't? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right, and, and that is one of the critiques of the uh, Boston University people is that they don't have a random sample. So these are self-selecting uh, people, either either themselves or their families. And so these are people who may already uh, feel that they have a, a, a predisposition one way or the other. And so, um, you know, it would be a lot different if you were, you know, and we can't do this, obviously. It would be a lot different if you could say, take 1,000 uh, deceased NFL football players and then just randomly pick every 50th brain and take a look at it and see what happened. Uh, that would be a much different and probably a much different result, too. For us, um, y- you know, we, we relied on people to volunteer. We, again, uh, we didn't have the ability to just sort of pick 1,000 retired CFL football players and then pull 25 names out of the hat and see how they they did, you know, and that is one of the limitations of our study is that you you depend on people who step forward and volunteer to do this. They're not getting paid for it. But did so, you ask them based on people you knew who had been having problems, or you just called a bunch of former CFL players? No, it it, it uh, so we weren't we didn't set out to look for people who had been complaining that they had problems. Uh, um, it was word of mouth in, in a lot of cases. You know, one guy would say, hey, I'm doing this study, and another guy would say, uh, you know, hey, count me in. Um, we had some people who were, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, refugees from uh, another study that's being done at the University of Toronto who uh, didn't want to commit to, you know, semi or annual or, or biannual testing uh, for eight hours a day over for two days of a weekend every year. So some of them said, hey, I'd ra- I'll do this because it's a one-shot deal. Um, so, yeah, w- the motivation for the for the players that participated in ours, I, I can't tell you. Uh, we had a mix of guys who anecdotally said, yeah, I'm a little bit concerned. You know, I forget my car keys, and, you know, I'm wondering if that's, you know, just normal for my age or is that a sign of something. To guys who said, hey, um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll sign up. I'll I'll give it a whirl. And they some of them said they didn't really think they had any problems whatsoever. It, it makes me wonder. Um, be, I don't think the University of Buffalo people, as you said off the top, I don't think they set out to rock the apple cart or do anything. They set out to do some science, and they came up with an answer that flew in the face of a lot of other science. But Steve, I got to believe that there are going to be people in the NFL offices, in the NHL offices, their lawyers. This Buffalo study is going to be latched onto in a big, big way by some of these leagues because this this allows some kind of a the first gasp at maybe something that doesn't put them on the hook for this. Yeah, and that's that's the part that that concerns me um, because I don't think that uh, you know putting aside this one University of Buffalo study, I don't think that there is any rational person, certainly not any rational scientific person or anyone who studies neurology, neurophysiology, neuroanatomy, who would say, yeah, uh, you know what, we're we're changing. It it would be like saying, yeah, you know what, Uh, we had one cold winter, so there's no climate change anymore. You know, uh, looking at this and saying there's one study, so you know what, maybe football and hockey aren't that dangerous anymore, and maybe getting a concussion isn't such a bad thing for your brain after all. That would be, I think, grossly irresponsible on the part of any sports league right now. Um, I don't think that there's any way that you can try to now argue that these are 
safe sports for your brain because it's it, it just it just isn't the case. Interestingly, while this is all going on, we're heading into the opening of NFL preseason. The camps are open, things are going on. The NFL has a new rule in place this year that prevents runners or even receivers, anybody who gets the ball downfield from using the crown of their head, the top of their helmet, to essentially work as a battering ram to go through a guy. And the idea is this is going to help cut down on concussions. It's interesting to me that they are coming up with new rules because it seems now they've either come legally or philosophically to the conclusion that they believe something is wrong. Sure. But, uh, you know, I'll go back to some of the results that we found from our study. And, you know, A, we had guys who said that they've never been diagnosed with a concussion through their entire career. Um, Clearly, their results showed that they were suffering, you know, brain trauma. And the results, uh, on average, were worse for guys that played what we call the sort of strength position, so offensive and defensive line. So these are guys who typically don't get a lot of concussions, but smack their heads together a hundred times a game at a sort of what they call sub-concussive level. So you're just sort of jostling your brain around a hundred times a game, multiplied by 16 games a season, multiplied by X number of practices per, per year. Um, and so these are guys who aren't getting the big walloping concussions that you see when you know a receiver and a, and a defensive back smack at full speed. And their results from just these sort of constant, uh, you know, jarring of the of the brains inside the skull were more, da- you know, they had more damage than the other ones. The ones that you look at and you sort of cringe and you go, oh, my God, how is that guy walking off the mm-hmm. field? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I think that's the other thing to remember is that it's not just uh, the concussions that are the problem. It's It's anything that causes your brain to hit the inside of your skull it's that helmet that you're born with that's the problem yeah and and to that point uh again from the buffalo news story they cite uh the buffalo researchers are citing another european study from last year of dozens of former professional rugby players with an average age of 54 in this study there were little to no signs of early onset dementia these rugby athletes each had an average they say of 14 concussions I, I again, the, I'm I'm starting to get very confused by what the science is that would come to conclusions that a football player with the subconcussive stuff are having these huge problems, and guys with 14 concussions are walking around 100% healthy. It just it doesn't jibe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and clearly, you know, there are people who can um, cope with uh, concussions uh, much different than other people. So you know, we know the cases of. You know the Sidney Crosbys who you know have a concussion and are really really debilitated, and then you know we see the cases of boxers like George Foreman or Muhammad well Muhammad Ali with the Parkinson's but you know a guy like uh, George Foreman or Joe Frazier or or even uh, up George until recently Chivalo. George Chavallo who now of course is showing signs of dementia um, to the best, you know from what I understand from stories in the Toronto Star. Um, you know, so you, you have these other guys that seem to be able to take an incredible amount of punishment and, and not show any exterior signs of it. You know, I think really, um, you know, until we get to a point where there's some sort of marker test, whether it's a, you know, a certain type of MRI or whether it's a certain type of blood test for, for a marker, you know, until we get to that point, um, you know, I think it, it is going to be confusing and, and, but I think that's a long way from saying, you know, I'm confused to I'm okay with letting people get their brains scrambled. Steve Bust of the Hamilton Spectator. Again, the piece, uh, the four-part series was called Collision Course. It is still on the website at thespec.com. Just scroll down the main page and you'll get to, you'll see it at the bottom there. And it's it's all there. You can read all the research. It involved a bunch of CFL players. If you missed it the first time, read it. If you saw it the first time, read this Buffalo News story, and then go read that one, and then decide which science (laughs) you're going to buy into, because it does make it confusing. Steve, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.